I want to ask you about your role as COVID-19 Special Envoy for both the World Health Organization and also the African Union. Um, so I'm, I, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about those two roles and also how do you see the impact of this pandemic playing out in Africa and globally over the next few months, over the next year? And how should these impacts be addressed? Well, uh, first of all, um, as you said, I'm, I'm a COVID-19 envoy for the African Union, uh, along with four other uh, colleagues who are top um, Africans. And our role is to try and mobilize financial resources for the continent to deal with this pandemic, both on the health aspects as well as the economic aspects. And it's a very great honor to be chosen to do this. And um, it shows how the continent has actually come together in a unified fashion to try and respond to the pandemic. This is not a, a pandemic or a, a, an epidemic that people can deal with on a country-by-country -country basis. It has to be in a unified fashion, so I'm quite proud of that. The second role is as WHO envoy for the ACT Accelerator. This is the initiative that has been set up to look at the possibility um, and the means for um, incentivizing the production of vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics uh, to help the world deal with the pandemic. And the whole idea of being an envoy for this is also to ensure that once the vaccines, for instance, are available, that they can be uh, widely distributed and delivered to the whole world at an affordable basis on an, an equitable basis. The, the whole point is that it should not be the case that the rich countries of the world get hold of these vaccines and are able to pay for them and poorer countries wait at the end of the queue. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, um, I, you've actually spoken sort of quite a bit about that recently, about the... Um, uh, I think the need for equity or sort of access for all when it when, yeah when it comes to when it comes to vaccines. Could you speak a little bit uh, a little bit on that, please? Yes, I, I, there's a strong feeling that uh, vaccines should be re regarded or taken as global public goods. That is, the profit making should not be the motive. But because this pandemic has hit the world in a system systemic way, and we know that for this pandemic, no country is safe until all countries are safe. No individual is safe until every individual is safe because the, the disease is easily transmitted from one individual to the other. So it should be the case that any cure, such as a vaccine, that can help us manage this uh, pandemic on a sustainable basis should be made widely available uh, to, to everyone it should be of high quality once it's certified as high quality and safe by WHO and other certificating organizations. We should get it in the billions of doses that will be needed and uh, it should be given to everyone in an affordable uh, way and equitably. Of course, you know, it will entail billions of doses that have to be manufactured. And so you have to see how do you incentivize manufacturers to do this? Um, how do you make sure that those who develop and, and, and uh, try, uh, develop and produce the vaccine, uh, that they can meet their costs? 
so that they can make this can be made available to ordinary human beings free, or at least in an affordable uh, fashion. And so it should be a global effort where the world is raising the resources needed to make this happen because it's a global public good. If you don't do it, it means down the road, the, the disease will reoccur somewhere and the world will be at risk again. Well, actually, to reach everyone, it will have to be billions of doses, uh, you know, and it, it depends on the type of vaccine it is. And nothing on that scale has ever, ever been done. Uh, so this will be a huge uh, logistical and delivery challenge. However, Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, of which I'm chair of the board, has uh, been in the business of delivering millions of doses of vaccines to children all over the world. Actually, we deliver to 60% of the world's children. So we have a, a, a well-organized platform for doing this. But billions of doses will be a challenge. One way, starting from the beginning, we need to use one of the instruments that uh, Gavi has developed called the Advanced Market Commitment which enables Gavi to engage right from the beginning in terms of incentivizing manufacture of the required numbers of doses. So we'll need to raise the billions of dollars that will cover this cost. Gavi has to develop this instrument with those who are going to manufacture and, and then um, sign a delivery contract to procure at an affordable rate, as I always insist. I insist on affordable because the governments may deliver this to their citizens free of charge, but someone has to pay for it. Once we agree on the nature of this advanced market commitment, the doses can be procured. Vaccines must be delivered with a cold chain because they have to be kept at a certain temperature all the way to the end of the line. There's a whole value chain, and Gavi knows how to do that. So I think that this is the way we'll go about it. Now, stepping back, before we even get to the delivery, you will need to have the manufacturing capability. And the assessment right now by all involved, be it CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is working on selecting the, you know, the vaccines, identifying those that will be developed, uh, the, the, the discussion on how to have enough manufacturing capacity is also an issue. And you need to start now to be able to build the type of manufacturing capability that will be needed. The vaccine will have to be licensed to, to other manufacturers from whoever has uh, discovered or developed it. And then all this has to be done before we get to uh, delivering it through the advanced market commitment instrument. I mean, that's a that sounds like a huge level of cooperation and coordination between governments, business, civil society. What? How does that happen? Well, this um, first of all, as we said, it has to be a global effort, and I'm happy to say that between the WHO and the European Commission 
an initiative was launched to make it a global effort and to develop this initiative of the ACT Accelerator. Now, within this, you have the public sector coming in, the government and raising resources. You have the private sector, the developers and the manufacturers. You have the research um, and identification of the vaccines where CEPI comes in. Then someone has to certify the quality and the allocation mechanism. Who should get it first? Because even when you manufacture the doses, Perhaps you'd start with millions, hundreds of millions of doses, then you get to billions. So you, there may be an allocation mechanism that says all over the world, the health workers, the front line, may get it first. Then older people and so on and so forth. And WHO has to do this on an equitable basis. They have to make these allocation decisions. They have to look at the quality and the safety and certify that these vaccines are good enough to be given to people all over the world. So you have this involvement. Then you have civil society. We have to work with civil society because they have to help us reach the communities uh, to, to let everybody know that this is safe and this is good and this is going to be the sustainable solution. So you see an endeavor where all it's a partnership with all actors in order to deliver on this. And it's being done under this umbrella of a global initiative. Do you, do you think Africa has, um, the continent of Africa has, has had to deal with, with pandemics in the past? Do you, do you think it's got very good muscle memory, I guess, for, for, for dealing with this? I do think in, in this one, on this pandemic, um, African countries have uh, uh, some lessons that they can share with the world. I think we've been slightly better off now than we were in the past, simply because we've had to deal with several infectious diseases like Ebola. So we've got platforms, we've had Ebola, we've also had polio, and some of these diseases require a contact tracing capability in order to identify who has it, who have they had contact with, and, and, and you know, then be able to isolate these people. And because of this, what we've had to deal with in the past, several countries have this ability now to work with the community, to be able to educate community, the community through community workers, to do the contact tracing that is necessary when a case is identified and there's isolation. Yes, so we have that. And, and I believe that in this pandemic, African countries have deployed this knowledge. You see very, very early on, as soon as the countries heard about the pandemic, they courageously implemented lockdowns immediately and through the machinery that they had at their command into operation. And I'm quite proud of the way that, you know, the countries responded. 39 countries out, out of the 51, I think possibly slightly more than that, implemented total or partial lockdowns right away. And I think this is smart and sensible because we, our health systems are, would be overwhelmed, weak, uh, the, to, to be able to deal with this. You've seen how the health systems of rich countries were overwhelmed and could not cope, let alone developing countries. But I want to mention one thing. The reason why I always say that it, it's courageous that the governments implemented the lockdown is because unlike the rich countries, we have masses of people who are in the informal sector. 
over 70% of people in the urban areas are in the informal sector, meaning that they earn their living on a daily basis. So if you now say that you implement a lockdown, it means that they cannot earn to feed their families. And on the continent, there has been this saying that, you know, the hunger virus might kill people before coronavirus. So you have to think of the economic consequences right away, as well as the health consequences. And this has not been easy, balancing the two. I was, I, there's, I'm going to ask you actually a, a, um, about how quickly countries should open, reopen their economies. Um, uh, but I also want to, you, I also want to ask you that I've seen you, so many issues um, that you've you've fought for that you're passionate about. I've, I've seen you speak on education, um, on economies, on trade, obviously on vaccines and health, um, um, on gender, on women's empowerment, people in the informal economy. What keeps you up at night about some of the issues that you fought passionately about? Well, let me, there are quite a number of issues that keep me awake. First and foremost is the fact that we should not be complacent about where Africa is at the moment. The, the, I know many people are seeing that the number of deaths on the continent is quite low, but the trajectory of the disease is still up. We do not see flattening of curves because the number of cases is still doubling every two weeks, and that is with very minimal testing. We have not really been testing the way we, we have. Um, talking to some experts the other day, uh, they say we, are, we have to reach 1 million tests, but they say we really need 13 million to be able to say where, what the trend is. So there's that. We should not be complacent because we don't know uh, if we are all just three or four weeks behind or if we are really uh, uh, not going to get the disease, uh, the hit in the way that people predict. I'm not complacent. So that's the first thing that keeps me up at night. How much how much longer will we see cases doubling? Will we see more deaths than we, we've seen now? Uh, that's still to be to be dis- decided. On the second thing is with the closure, education, um, schools have been shut down like in many countries uh, all over the world. On the continent, most schools have been closed. And uh, you you would see that in many, many countries, children can continue learning at all levels because they can do online learning. They have access to the Internet. But in many of our countries, this is simply not the case. So it means that children are really out of school. And uh, so they may be falling behind. And there's also the fear that girls in particular, may not come back when schools reopen. So that really worries me and keeps me awake. On the other hand, I also see an opportunity that if we can implement the infrastructure for learning in the future, we could all actually reach more girls. Those who are not allowed to go to school might be able to learn at home, but that's for the future. The third thing that worries me is the impact mental and psychological uh, on families and households. When people are not able to learn, they are not able to eat properly, there's more tension in the home, there's more abuse and violence. And it's been reported, although the evidence we have now is anecdotal, uh, that there's been increase in gender violence in so many countries all over the world. And that really worries me as to what will happen um, uh, with to women and girls. And I believe that we need to 
place women, girls, and youth at the center of any recovery just because we need to hear their voices um, and hear what it is they need as we're trying to make our economies uh, recover. So those are just a few things. The final thing is how quickly will our economies actually recover? Because right now the prediction is for a contraction on the continent of about 2%. This has not happened for the past 25 years. So I have this fear that the two or three decades of growth that we've had and of development may be lost. We may be set back unless we act massively uh, to reverse this and make sure it doesn't happen uh, during the recovery period. I mean, people have talked about a debt crisis in in emerging economies. What what sort of fiscal space should be given? What um, what actions do you think leaders should take? Well, uh, on the issue of uh, of the debt crisis, I want to say one thing that African countries, many of them, have very little fiscal space to respond to this crisis because the debt to GDP ratios have been climbing. On average, they're approaching 60% for the entire continent. And in many countries, they're, you know, already 60 and beyond, 80% in some, even 100. Um, And so this means that they do not have the room, the fiscal resources to respond to this crisis because they are facing the payment of, of these debts. I'll just give you an example. If you look at developed countries, they've been able to implement 8 to 10% of GDP fiscal stimulus to recover, help their economies recover and to deal with the health crisis. Some have even gone as far as 20% of GDP. Japan announced a 20% of GDP fiscal stimulus. This is trillions of dollars. Contrast that with the African continent where the average stimulus has been 0.8% of GDP, one-tenth of what rich countries are able to implement. And, and this is because of the lack of fiscal space. So this leads to the issue of, can there be a debt standstill for a couple of years in order to release resources into the hands of these governments to respond to the health crisis and the economic crisis rather than using it to service debt during these two years? And when I say standstill, I'm not saying that the countries will default or not pay. It just gives breathing room and an opportunity to look at the debt sustainability of each country and then to see which group of countries need their debts reprofiled so that they can pay on a longer term and, and perhaps at a more sustainable rate, which ones need some other kind of treatment because truly their debt sustainability analysis just doesn't work out. So we need to look at the various categories of countries and it's better to do it this way than to have a disorderly situation in future where in two or three years these countries are unable to pay. And I'm afraid this crisis, this pandemic, the impact will last a little bit longer than we think. It's not going to be over this year or even next year. It might prolong into 2022. And that is why these countries need breathing room. So about two or three questions I'd like to ask you. Um, one is, what, what are you most looking forward to after, after lockdown? After lockdown, I'm looking, uh, I'm most looking forward to uh, two or three things. Well, the resumption of normal activity as much as we can make it uh, because of the impact of the lockdown on on our economies and, and on people out of jobs. I'm hoping that 
some actions taken during the crisis to uh, let small businesses to support them with liquidity, to distribute food directly and cash resources uh, through mobile money and the use of technology can reach as many families so they'll be able to rebound. I'm hoping for that, that we'll be able to rebound. Now, will that be very quick? Like I said before, I don't think so. But if we can at least have a gradual rebound. The second thing is that whatever resources we have for fiscal stimulus, we should use it in a better way. People are talking of building back better. And I really believe in that. What does that mean? That means that we should not go back and do things the same old way we were doing the things before. It's now time to look for the opportunity in this crisis. And there's opportunity in so many different ways if we care to look for it. First, if we are rebuilding and creating jobs through infrastructure, do we build them back in the old way or do we look for low carbon emission, more climate friendly uh, ways to do it? Look at the fact that emissions have dropped by about 17% during this time of the COVID crisis, we've, climate change, we've had a, a, a very good impact. So as we build back on infrastructure, let's think when it comes to energy, let's think renewables rather than the old fossil fuel. Uh, let's think of cleaner ways uh, uh, to do things and gre greener ways. So that's one, one set of building back uh, that I would think about. Second, supply chains. Um, we've seen the supply chains for medical equipment and pharmaceuticals and medicines. This has really taken everybody a little bit by surprise that people, countries have become, because of globalization, very dependent on the manufacture of these essential supplies and equipment. On certain, they become dependent on certain countries. This is not necessarily a bad thing because globalization has been able to help. But I think that every country is going to reassess and say, and what, we need a certain basic minimum uh, of this supply chain on the continent so that if something happens, we can immediately have access. And I think the African continent can see this as an opportunity to bring back some of that manufacture of pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. Look, in Senegal, they developed a test kit for under a dollar. In Ghana and Nigeria, people are making masks everywhere. In a university where I'm chair of the board, they've, been, they've made some PPE, some protective equipment, which can be scaled up. So we have the capability on the continent to manufacture some of these things. The opportunities for us to invest in that, encourage others to invest, and to trade among ourselves. If PPE is being manufactured in, in one country, we can trade and make the supplies available to a neighboring country. The African Continental Free Trade Agreement has come into force. We should use it to be able to trade among ourselves. So that's an opportunity. Secondly, we create more jobs for our youth. Imagine now 94% of our pharmaceutical supplies for the continent is imported. That's too high. I think we should seize the opportunity to manufacture more of our own medicines in place. So that's another uh, opportunity. So thirdly, or is it fourthly, I think we need to rethink the way we make decisions. When we build back better, we need to put women and youth at the center of our decision making. 
Very often they are not consulted in the way they should. And this pandemic has affected them differentially. Take women, for example, they're the bulk of frontline workers in terms of nurses, community health workers, and so on. But are they really consulted in the way decisions are made? The answer is no. We need to put women back for all the reasons we talked about uh, uh, previously. We need to put youth back because it's all about them. It's about jobs. So in short, our decision making needs to change. There are many ways we need to reimagine the continent. And the biggest one is we need to look at the structure of our economies. How do we really make real the diversification of the economies, not to be so dependent on commodity exports. How do we make real the diversification of revenue sources? Because in some, like my country, Nigeria, we really we have a diverse economic base, but we have a, monol a, mon a monolith in terms of the revenue source. So our revenues come mainly from oil and, and gas. And yet we've got agriculture, we've got the creative sector, we've got some manufacturing, but we don't tax them as, as efficiently as we should to diversify the economic base. So Africa has to reimagine and rethink itself um, uh, during this, this process. And I think we can use this as an opportunity. You can see I've become very excited and passionate because, you know, Winston Churchill said, never waste a crisis. And I see that out of this crisis, we can really make many good things. That was perfect. Thank you very much. So my last question, is there a book or a piece of literature that you've read in the last 12 months that you think all of us should read? Ooh, I've read quite a few. Um, let me tell you, I think there are some I've read on the side of relaxation and some on the side of my work. So in the last 12 months on the side of my work, I've gone back repeatedly to a book called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Um, because, you know, the world is so depressed now, and especially for young people, thinking of all the things that are not working, the class of 2020, how will we get jobs? And there's a tendency to think all is going wrong. In this book, you find very many facts about what the world has managed to achieve that we don't even know about. So, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Another one is uh, Globalization. Um, revisited by Joe Stiglitz. He, 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 he had written Globalization and its discontents a, 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 a couple of decades ago, and it was a bestseller. He's revisited it, and it's really worth reading this because it reminds you of what went wrong, even in the developed countries. The first one, he concentrated on developing countries. This one is, how is it? Look at the inequality in the developed countries that has led to some of the disconnects that we see now and the discontent and distrust of government and the impact on democracy. It's really worth looking at that. Um, and then on the side of, uh, of, of leisure, I've been, I've been looking at two things. One is the 13th century Persian poet Rumi. I love Rumi and, you know, I often go back and read his verses and his couplets for comfort. And then there's a book I also go back to. It's called The Trouble with Nigeria by uh, the classic, fantastic author, Chinua Achebe. And <laughs> I go back to it to remind me of all the things we need to do to 
make my wonderful, lovable, chaotic, difficult country Nigeria work. Thank you very much. That was a that was a lovely interview. I it was a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for well, giving thank, giving thank your you time. Thank you, Max. Thank you.